Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Wow episode 18. I, I've so enjoyed this podcast and I have to tell you, I, I'm in love with the fact that I have a direct connection to my listeners. You don't hesitate to write in. More of you could write. Um, and many more of you are joining my the public Facebook group for Everyday Buddhism and I encourage you to do that. Um, you'll find the link on Facebook and also on my Everyday Buddhism website. Before I get into uh, what we're going to talk about today, which are the, f- the five precepts, I wanted to make a couple of announcements before we get into it, and I, I hope to not drag this out too long. But first, I want to say again, thank you for all your questions and um, responses to my podcast through uh, emails and messages. Um, Since I started, um, I've asked you guys to send suggestions and questions, and I've been thrilled and and actually a bit overwhelmed due to the response. You know, I wanted to, my plan was to quickly and thoroughly answer every one of your questions, um, but due to the number, I just can't keep up. I'd love to to get at them as time, you know, in a timely way, but I just can't do it in, you know, weeks and then months go by and I haven't answered the question. I will always try to do so, answer your questions, um, and of course, I will review all your suggestions um, for use as podcast subjects, which actually today, the the episode on the five precepts is actually in response to listener uh, suggestions or listener questions that or requests that I would do an episode on the five precepts. But back to the questions. I've launched a area of my website. It's actually its own domain. Um, it's Dharma to go with hyphens, Dharma dash to dash go. So Dharma to go.com or the Dharma to go tab on my website. If you have a question that you need it right away, or you don't want to wait a month or two months or whenever I get to it, feel free to access Dharma to go. Uh, clearly, I'm asking for a donation for this so that I can support my time away from work that I do to answer your question in a timely manner. So I hope if you have a question, you don't hesitate to use it or just wait for my answer. I will get to it eventually, but maybe not as quick as you would like. So check it out, see what you think. And if you have any other suggestions on something like that in a way that I could help you, let me know. Uh, The other uh, quick announcement I want to make is I'm excited to say I'm working on a book. Um, We have a target date for uh, the the year anniversary of this podcast, which was uh, the summer solstice. Um, So the end of June or, you know, the third week of June, that's my target date. I hope to meet it. 
we'll see what happens, but uh, thank you for your support and asking for more textual information to support this podcast. I think the book will give you what you need. But we'll move on to the subject of today's podcast, and this subject is brought to you by your listeners because you guys asked for it. So today I am going to talk about the five precepts. And I will be honest, I have been reluctant to approach this topic. I've had numerous requests from podcast listeners to speak about it, and I'm not going to put it off any longer, so here it goes. Before I go into the reasons for my reluctance to talk about the five precepts, I'll list the five precepts for those that don't know what they are in their typical do-not-do format. So, The five precepts are, one, do not kill or refrain from destroying living creatures. Two, do not steal, which is refrain from taking what is not given to you. Three, do not misuse sex, refrain from sexual misconduct. Four, do not lie, refrain from incorrect speech. And five, do not indulge in intoxicants, refrain from substances that lead to carelessness. I will rephrase them in a positive way, so they're not do not do, but suggestions to do, which I think is a little more helpful as guidelines for Buddhist practice. But first I'll get into a little bit about why I didn't want to talk about the five precepts to begin with. You know, I've talked about this before. Actually, I devoted a whole episode to it, you know, the Buddhist answer to everything. Buddhism is tricky. And and the reason people come to Buddhism is as varied as there are people. Um, Some people come to it as looking for religion. Others come to it as an escape from another religion, yet maybe because it offers some sort of cogent worldview and or spiritual practice. Others are attracted to it because of the meditative aspect of it. Or some even are are, uh, attracted to it because they want to bliss out. Um, And others uh, really do want to reach that goal of enlightenment. And and some just hope it'll free them from their troubles. You know, I think my impetus for coming to Buddhism and looking back, I kind of try to look back at what it is, all the sort of, Um, instances in my life that led me to study and practice Buddhism. My initial impetus, I think, was a combination of all of them. I had an almost, I had almost found the faith that my mother had in God during my preteen and early teen years. But, you know, as is the case many times when I reached to the teenager status, I kind of went into that intellectual rebellion against almost anything my mother or father or society in general held dear. I I first started reading about Buddhism back in the you know those preteen late teen year or preteen early teen years with uh, the book Siddhartha, which I think a lot of people read, especially in my age, um, by Herman Hesse. And then I dug deeper with Alan Watts and whatever was available at the time. And then that exploration led me to explore Hinduism and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. And then I spent a little time talking to the Krishnas and chanting because of George Harrison. You know, during my teens and early 20s, I fought panic attacks 
and I had a profound fear of death. That sense of anxiety and fear first visited me when I was even younger, like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Then it reemerged in my late teens. So during that time, my spiritual searching was driven by the urge for comfort and, and help through those anxieties and fears. I was looking for and holding on to some sort of transcendent comforter, if you will. You know, God, Krishna, Jesus. That's what I needed at the time. But I fell away from the grasping for a comforter as my panic attacks and anxieties kind of eased and subsided after I worked with a psychiatrist specializing in anxiety. And then more was I started throwing myself into my work in broadcast engineering. And then as I kind of drifted away from that profound anxiety, you know, sort of ruling my life, I started approaching my spiritual search as more of a psychological and philosophical curiosity. And there's always a part of me, though, still that was looking for that faith I almost grasped as a child and still probably looking for that transcendent comforter I searched for in my teens and 20s. Buddhism, though, to me, offered that calm, meditative approach and a, combined with that philosophical and psychological heft that it has. It was offered all those things I was looking for. And the best part was that I found out the more I got into Buddhism, no matter how much I investigated, there were always more and different paths to explore. So for someone who has this uh, uh, sort of insatiable philosophical curiosity and intellectual curiosity and theosophical curiosity and theological curiosity. You know, it was like if something didn't seem right to me or if if, if I, I wanted to find out more, I kept going and I kept finding the more. You know, I looked deeper and deeper, starting with Zen, then going deep into Tibetan Buddhist studies in the Galupa school with Geshe teachers. And then I started practicing with the Drikun Kagyu and the Nyingma Sanghas and taking teachings from visiting Rinpoches and Kempos until I found a home with the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. And I found my own spiritual center. It was a place sort of comprised of all I'd studied and a practice that was founded more on a Shin and Zen um, basis. But through it all, I knew for sure I was not looking for some new set of moral guidelines. I was already pretty uptight, as I indicated earlier, and I had a tendency, you know, to cling to traditional things when I felt insecure or frightened. So what I really think I saw in Buddhism was a path that would loosen me up and chill me out, yet offer the peace of something to believe in or a big story to commit myself to. It was from that environment I have consistently had an uneasy relationship with the precepts. My personal experience with them and the experience I witnessed with others' relationship to the precepts was that they consistently produced far more questions than answers. It seemed, and it still seems to me, that clinging to the five precepts as rules, laws, or edicts of moral authority coming from the Buddha just causes more suffering than it prevents. You know, when you look at the precepts from a fundamental surface view, 
almost every one of them seem impossible to keep when you look at all the causes and conditions and complexities in our modern life. Con Franz, he's the deputy editor of Buddha Dharma, the Practitioner's Quarterly, wrote this about the five precepts, and I agree with it. He says, the internet keeps telling me that I'm eating pounds of bugs in my sleep, as one example. And in today's economy, how can we always know what is given or not given? If I click like on a Facebook post just to be supportive, is that a lie? At the same time, the precepts are ambiguous enough that we can, if we're so inclined, weave some convincing stories about how the thing we most want to do is actually the exception to the rule. So eventually they become mere background noise, unquote. So as he points out a little later in the same article about the five precepts, he says, they can provide a questioning that turns the lens of this practice away from ourselves and toward how we can serve others. They can give us, at least in the moment, a place to stand. That is, if we remain open to what they mean in each new circumstance. And that's the thing I was hinting at before I got to this this quote, is that there's so many complexities in today's world. How can we be certain that we're doing anything right or wrong, quote, or quote unquote, according to the precepts? Because there's so many conflicting factors involved, and we really even can't know most of them. That's my unease around the precepts. I'm uneasy because from my experience talking to people in the real world, is that precepts, although useful, if you can skillfully incorporate them as guidelines for your practice, or as what he said, a framework of questioning that can turn the lens of the practice away from ourselves and toward how we can serve others, those are all big ifs. But too often when people who are relatively new to Buddhism anticipate taking or have taken the precepts as vows, when they take refuge or ordain as a lay Buddhist, they then see them as rigid commandments or moral absolutes. And when that happens, the precepts become just another set of rules and thou shalt and thou shall nots that set up brick walls or barriers between our actual understanding of the Dharma, our understanding of the right view, as I believe the Buddha intended. It also can separate people from each other, as if we need more of that in today's world. And it can separate individuals from embracing and gaining a deeper understanding of their own mind and of the teachings of the Dharma, especially if they feel the precepts have set them up as failing, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience, directly or indirectly, of being involved in a passionate and often heated discussion online or in person about veganism or vegetarianism versus meat eating. This is coming from the first precept. And this can be among Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. But when it happens in either a virtual or real-life Buddhist community, it does little to help anyone nor does it generally change minds. But what it does do 
is create a tighter grip on opinions and judgments or make new practitioners feel like they either don't belong or that they're failures. This is what I have to ask. How can this help anyone? How does that relieve suffering? You know, in the article Buddha's Bicycle by Zachary Bremer, he describes how for him, the precepts are like training wheels. You know, they're helpful in their rigidity at the start, but later on, you know, they're not as critical because they're not as a substitute for the moment-to-moment, on-the-ground wisdom, sort of like the innate moment-to-moment, on-the-ground balance we feel when we learn how to ride a bicycle. But, you know, that implies, first of all, that practice. In my experience, it is the moment-to-moment, on-the-ground wisdom, right, that he's talking about, that is the ticket to using the precepts skillfully. And that takes a, at least a somewhat committed and somewhat experienced practice of working with the Eightfold Path, especially right view and right intention that are with, with a, applied in like a meditative way or a concentrated way. We need to really understand that right view and right intention first, I think, before working with the precepts. To work with the precepts skillfully, uh, as Con France speaks of in that other article, he says you have to triangulate the truth of each action. And this, to me, represents the problem I have with the precepts as something to focus on as a beginner in Buddhism or as someone who's taking up Buddhism as an everyday Buddhism path. Not a, uh, not a committed religious path or not a fundamental path, not a traditional path. You know, beginning Buddhist practitioners or those who want to adopt the guidelines and practices to their everyday lives need to understand first the Four Noble Truths and practice the Eightfold Path to reinforce the understanding that are, that's contained in there to reinforce it until it becomes their own thinking. That's, that's the, t- the trick with learning anything. You can, you can repeat rules, you can repeat formulas, you can repeat all sorts of stuff, but you're only repeating the words. If they don't become a part of you to the point that you know it inside out and you can say it in your own words, you can say it from your own thinking, then you haven't gained the proper perspective. So without that, without that perspective, right understanding can never result. And the precepts will only represent empty rules, empty words, external commandments, if you will. You know, a quote-unquote fundamentalist attitude is never skillful in Buddhist practice. And too often it seems people confuse the five precepts with a rigid system of ethics that they must follow, even before they have a basic understanding of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. We know from the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths that the reason we feel dissatisfaction, the reason for the dukkha, is because of grasping and craving. And we also know that the Buddha promised a way out, a freedom from that craving through the practice of the Eightfold Path. 
What I've seen is that people grasp to the precepts, thinking that it is the obedience to them that will set them free. And there is some truth to that. The precepts do offer a path that can condition the mind and body so that you have created a clean and clear vehicle for meditation and right view. The purpose as a mental training regimen that will gradually rid your mind of upset or disturbance. We can be weak people for sure. I'll speak for myself here and say that, you know, I do sometimes give in to cravings for experiences or things that aren't the best for keeping mental discipline. And for those who have trouble disciplining their mind and behavior, the precepts are good functional training wheels that can help break bad habits. Again, from the Buddha's bicycle, Zachary Bremer points out that the precepts can work on a subtle level too, in that that gradual avoiding of unskillful behaviors, through it we can begin to transform the internal structure of how we think about and how we react to certain situations. He writes, quote, If I habitually give in to my cravings, I will certainly suffer as a result. If I do not allow myself to be pulled around by these insatiable desires, though, I will become awakened to a new way of dealing with these feelings. I will begin to realize that I do not need to act on my lust for food or drink or objects. I will no longer be ruled by an endless cycle of grasping, but rather simply take notice that I have certain desires and let them be. The precepts help to accomplish this. Unquote. I like that. That's good. I agree with that. They are tools to help protect us from ourselves if we are caught in what one of my teachers used to call a klesha attack. A klesha is the Sanskrit word referring to mental states that cloud the mind and manifest in possibly unwholesome actions like anxiety, fear, anger, jealousy, desire, depression. If used as tools and not as weapons of judgment of ourselves or others or divisiveness, then I embrace the teachings and practices of the precepts. If thought of as a kind of mother protecting me from my own blind or ignorant passions, then I believe the precepts are skillful. You know, I love the way Martine Batchelor expresses how we might interpret the precepts as a course of Buddhist ethics. Quote, the first is to consider them in terms of restraint, which is most often emphasized in the Theravada tradition of Southeast Asia. In Theravada Buddhism, there are codified rules which monastics follow strictly, avoiding any speech or action that might break them. Restraint facilitates peace and concentration of mind. It can be represented by this verse proclaimed by the Buddha, not to commit evil, but to practice all good and to keep the heart pure. To keep the heart pure means to try to keep the mind uncluttered. It does not mean that we are saintly. It means that we are reasonably aware, reasonably caring, open to ourselves and to others, and not influenced by hatred greed, or delusion. Now, in Mahayana Buddhism, it holds that each person, act, and object is inherently empty. 
Therefore, nothing is intrinsically good or bad because everything depends on our intention and on our motivation and our circumstances. And the third way of looking at ethics is found in the tantric practices or Vajrayana practices of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Now, Vajrayana Buddhism uses everything that is in life, both positive and negative, as a potential tool for transformation. Now, these three approaches are complementary because sometimes it is best to restrain ourselves to prevent doing harm. At other times, it is important to look beyond the moralistic categories of good and bad in order to do what is skillful to alleviate suffering. And finally, sometimes we just have to sit with the messiness of our minds and actions and try to transform them from within, unquote. So now that we've framed these all, given it a good look inside out, bad, good, let's look at it from an everyday Buddhism perspective more as a gentle guideline or a gentle guide rather than a commandment. You know, some people find that they are more comfortable stating the precepts positively because it is, you know, more inspiring to say what you should do rather what you should not do. Some people have crafted their own sort of expanded or elaborated versions of this because it helps add a sort of a a practice of what they should do in everyday life. So let's look at the five precepts worded in a positive way rather than a negative way. Number one, I will protect and support life and strive to love and understand others. Number two, I will take only what is freely given and practice gratitude and generosity. Number three, I will respect and support ongoing relationships honor my commitments, and practice discernment in sexual activity without compulsiveness. Number four, I will say what is true, useful, and timely, and practice deep listening so that my speaking and listening reflects loving kindness and compassion. And number five, I will maintain a clear and alert mind that is aware of its motivations moment to moment, so that I can discern between what is the cause of suffering and what is not the cause of suffering. You know, the first precept of Buddhism, do not kill, or worded positively, protect and support life and strive to love and understand others, raises some major hot-button issues, as I hinted at before, from veganism to abortion to euthanasia... Let's see, capital punishment, serving in the military, and medical research. Those last two, serving in the military and medical research, were actual two questions that my listeners had and, and wrote to me about. You know, these issues can be the cause for judgment and divisiveness, as well as the cause for self doubt. It's okay to look into yourself. That's the whole point of this and, and see why you're doing it. What is your intention? Um, are you craving something? Are you grasping something? Um, do you have the right view? Are you ignorant about something? It's good to do that, but it's not good to use precepts as edicts or rules from above causing you to be discouraged or give up. 
Now, I've discussed this before, but it might be beneficial to remind everyone again that every Buddhist school lineage and even teacher interprets the precepts differently. Like the quote from Bachelor um, that I used before that talked about the Theravadin view, the Mahayana view, and, and the Vajrayana view. One thing that's, I think, to be taken in mind in when you're thinking about the f- first precept of, of not killing or not harming another living being, protecting life. Um, the Theravada Buddhists say that to have a violation or to break that precept involves actual five factors. So this brings intent into the works, right? It's not just a a rule. There's other things involved. There's causes and conditions and intent. So they list them as, first, there has to be a living being. Second, that there has to be the perception that that being is a living being. Third, there has to be the conscious chosen thought of killing. Fourth, the killing has to be actually carried out fifth and the be- the being has to die. So what this saying is that there must be a willful thought of killing a being. And this includes even having someone else, asking someone else to do the actual killing. And according to this teaching, a premeditated killing is a graver offense than a killing that is impulsive, such as in self-defense. Now, in Mahayana teachings, the first precept is explained this way, and I'll quote this from a sutra. A disciple of the Buddha shall not himself kill, encourage others to kill, kill by expedient means, praise killing, rejoice at witnessing killing, or kill through incantation or deviant mantras. He must not create the causes, conditions, methods, or karma of killing, and he shall not intentionally kill any living creature. As a Buddha's disciple, he ought to nurture a mind of compassion and filial piety, always devising expedient means to rescue and protect all beings. If instead he fails to restrain himself and kills sentient beings without mercy, he commits a major offense. This is from the Mahayana Brahajala or Brahmanet Sutra. So when we look at the many different ways that this first precept just alone is taught, it becomes clear that the precepts are slippery subjects and they cannot be viewed as absolutes. Karma Lekshi Tsomo, a professor of theology and a nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, explains, quote, there are no moral absolutes in Buddhism. And it is recognized that ethical decision-making involves a complex nexus of causes and conditions. When making moral choices, individuals are advised to examine their motivation, whether it is aversion, attachment, ignorance, wisdom, or compassion, and to weigh the consequences of their actions in light of the Buddhist teachings." So let's look at some of these issues. You know, people all often associate Buddhism, as we talked about, with vegetarianism. Although, you know, most schools of Buddhism do encourage vegetarianism, usually it is considered a personal choice, not a requirement. You know, from the sutras, it is clear that the historical Buddha was not a strict vegetarian. You know, the first monks obtained all their food by begging, and the Buddha taught his monks to eat whatever food they were given, including meat. 
However, if a monk knew an animal had been slaughtered specifically to feed monks, the meat was to be refused. You know, then there's Buddhism and euthanasia, which is something one of my listeners wrote about in relationship to medical testing. You know, I've read or heard teachers say that Buddhism does not support euthanasia. But again, there doesn't seem to be a hard and fast rule. A prominent Zen teacher says it's selfish not to euthanize a suffering animal out of your own personal squeamishness. And then there's Buddhism and military service. That's another topic that a listener wrote to me about. There are thousands of Buddhists serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, including some Buddhist chaplains. Buddhism does not demand absolute pacifism. Yet, as Robert Aiken wrote, quote, the collective ego of a nation state is subject to the same poisons of greed, hatred, and ignorance as an individual. So, you know, war is clearly something that should cause pause and consideration. And I think the way Ken McLeod, a senior student of the late Kalu Rinpoche, who teaches at Unfettered Mind, explained it, keeps the right view in the precept rather than the precept higher than the right view. He wrote, quote, Given the complexity of life in contemporary society, killing or involvement with killing is unavoidable. Biological, social, or political demands can conflict with the intention not to take life. We eat food and wear clothes produced by processes that involve someone taking the lives of animals. We kill insects and rodents to prevent them from invading our homes or spreading disease. We kill in subtler ways as well. A harsh word may instantly kill years of trust. A derisive comment may kill inspiration in another person. We may kill a relationship by taking another person for granted. Again, we do such things because we are reacting to some perceived threat. You know, deep questions about values and ethics arise around the issues of abortion, life support, and elective suicide for those with debilitating and terminal illnesses. In these and other circumstances, always call up compassion so that you see clearly and then go empty into all the complexities so you know what is and in that knowing, act without hesitation, unquote. Moving on to the second precept, not to steal or put positively, to take only what is freely given and to try to practice gratitude and generosity. This one is harder than it seems, I think. You know, we all think, oh, well, I don't steal. You know, there are some thoughts that I had inspired by Donald Rothberg, who teaches meditation and socially engaged Buddhism. And I've thought about these things before. Can you say that you're breaking the precept of not stealing or or uh, taking what is not freely given to you when you use work time surfing the internet, or when you use your roommate's shampoo without asking, or when you take office supplies from your work because you rationalize it as compensation for being underpaid, or when you exaggerate in your tax deductions, or enjoy even your economic and social privilege through participating 
in a system in which others have been unfairly exploited. You know, he suggests that we look at the second precept from three perspectives. From an outer perspective, an inner perspective, and a social perspective. And I think this could easily apply to all precepts when we meditate on them. Okay, the outer perspective. Reflect on any of the examples I just listed. What were the root causes, both inner and outer? What was your motivation? Did you cause harm to yourself or others? Look more generally at the balance of giving and taking in your daily interactions. How might you strengthen your generosity? And then the inner. Monitor your actions. Look at greed and the way you grasp and the things that you grasp at so that you can develop generosity, renunciation, moderation, and a a sense of inner contentment. You know, greed and grasping are rooted in delusion, the misconception that our well-being depends on acquiring something out there, a certain object, experience, or relationship. But we learn through our practice that ultimately our being, our presence, is enough when we see clearly. Try being attentive to moments when you desire something strongly. Greed will typically be characterized by a self-centeredness that forms that desire, a lack of connection to others, a feeling of being out of balance or out of control, an obliviousness to consequences, and at times even an exaggerated sense of entitlement. Reflect on these distinctions between a legitimate desire and pure greed. And the social way he he suggests we look at these, the second precept and and I suggest that you could look at all precepts this way, is that uh, the individual is also involved in an overarching social ethic. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh tells us not not simply to possess nothing that should belong to others, but also to prevent others from enriching themselves from the suffering of other beings. This might mean to live more simply, and to be aware as possible of social tendencies toward greed and grasping how and how we have internalized them in our own lives. Reflect on our everyday choices in areas such as food, investments, and community life, and in our relationships to social privilege, unquote. Now the third precept to respect and support ongoing relationships, honor commitments, and practice discernment in sexual activity without compulsiveness. Fortunately, I doubt that any listeners of this podcast would approach this precept with a a strict or fundamentalist view towards sexual and gender identity or non-traditional relationships, so I won't even touch those issues. But as is the case with all the precepts, these are not rules. This precept is about acting from our own intimate connection to another without harm or disrespect. Pure and simple. Breaking the precept of sexual misconduct would be an act that causes harm to someone, like infidelity. This precept also, though, touches on the subject of craving and clinging by avoiding attachment to the senses. You know, can you ask yourself, can you find a quality in sexual feelings that is not clinging and attachment, but a more profound and joyful, appreciative relatedness? 
and also the restraint part of it for those who have like sexual addiction issues. It's not a question of just saying no or abstinence. It's a question of gaining insight into our motives and drives and a feeling of the corresponding responsibility for our actions. Once we have realized our true intentions, we can make mindful choices that enable us to enjoy our sexuality in a compassionate and mindful way. You know, no rules can help us when we feel controlled by unconscious forces. And that is where the true spirit of the third precept can help. The third precept counsels us to maintain awareness, to know ourselves deeply, to be aware of what is happening in the moment, and to extend that awareness to those around us fully realizing our interconnection at every level. And moving on to the fourth precept. Ah, this is a biggie. This one's about speech again. It's about saying what is true, useful, and timely. And it's about practicing deep listening so that my speaking and listening reflects a loving kindness and compassion. If you haven't noticed it already, right speech is a big deal in Buddhism. It's the fourth precept and also the third step on the Eightfold Path. Yes, it's about telling the truth, but it's also about using speech to share love and joy and not injure. And I think I mentioned this deep listening part in my episode on right speech, but I will share with you that that is something I work with a lot. And that means I fail, but I keep trying. It's about being more aware of the other and what they are saying than thinking about what you want to say or getting your point of view out. You know, without deep listening, we couldn't even have loving speech. We have to listen to each other in order to understand what's going on in another's mind and heart, their worries, their desires, their suffering. Once we have understood, then we can help them with our words, with our compassion. And sometimes that compassion means to just keep quiet, just be a listener, just be someone who they they can count on to listen. We also need to listen to ourselves so we know what's really going on inside. And that knowing will prevent us from reacting to what's going on outside. Then we must learn to listen deeply to our partner and family. Right speech prompts us to ask our loved ones, what could I do to make you happier? And then to listen to the reply without judging or reacting. Right speech asks us to say, thank you for being here with me. Thank you for being here for me. Your presence enriches my life. Your presence makes my life better. So please tell me how I can listen to you and love you better. Some of the sticky questions that I've been asked, and I'm sure others have been asked about right speech are, is it okay to tell a white lie? We've all been there. Sometimes the truth is just too hurtful to say out loud. So it depends very much on how you tell the truth. You know, in Buddhism, we can never say that a certain conduct is right or wrong. 
it is impossible to give blueprints for ethical behavior because every single situation is different. That's why Buddhism is so unique and that's why dealing with the precepts is kind of tricky. If you are wondering whether or not you should tell the truth, you should examine your motivation very carefully. Why do you want to say that? And ask others what they think before you say anything because they may see the situation more clearly than you can. Another question that I've been asked is when or how is it, is it appropriate or inappropriate to express our anger? Well, obviously, we try not to express our anger when we are in the grips of it. When anger is in control of us, our mind is clouded and we'll definitely regret anything we will say. So you take a few minutes, focus on your breath and nothing else. And that clears the mind. And when you are calm and in control of your mind, then you can open up a dialogue. And a dialogue is the key word here. And the other question that's asked is, is it okay to gossip? Most times I would say no. I think the best rule of thumb is don't say anything about anyone when they're not present that you wouldn't say if they're standing right in front of you. You know, I think social media has really blurred our sense of what's real and what's virtual. It's like the people out there on the other side of their computer screens aren't really real people who could get hurt by what you say without thinking. Too often, I witness people saying things on social media and texting things that I am pretty sure they would never say to anyone in person. I think that is the best training ground for questioning yourself about right speech. I think if you can ask yourself, do I really want to say this? Do I really need to say this? Is it really helpful before you put something on the internet? Boy, if you can do that and catch yourself, more often than not, you may catch yourself not saying anything. And that's a great training ground for right speech. Now, this brings us to the fifth precept which opens another door again to a whole bunch of gray areas and hot button issues like we reached in the first precept. I will maintain a clear and alert mind that is aware of its motivations moment to moment so that I can discern between what is the cause of suffering and what is not the cause of suffering. That's the fifth precept. Most of us think of it as intoxication, but I think that's the fifth precept. A clear, maintaining a clear and alert mind that is aware of its motivations moment to moment so you c I can discern between what is the cause of suffering and what is not the cause of suffering. See, the essence of this precept is that we need to avoid anything that leads us to behave without being mindful. It means thinking about whether we're doing something as an escape or a way to deal with restlessness, anxiety, and pain. You know, traditionally, like I said, this precept, precept is about not taking intoxicants, and it is understood as to avoid addictive substances. But many things, not just alcohol or drugs, can be used in such a way that they become intoxicants. You know, coffee, tea, gum, sweets, you know, chocolate, sex, sleep, power, fame. And if you're proud of being abstinent from liquor or anything else listed in the old rules, 
while you're still engaging in compulsive and addictive either Facebooking or Instagramming or video game playing, then I think we're completely missing the point of Buddhism in general, as well as the precepts themselves. It's true, of course, that alcohol and other intoxicating substances are more likely to lead to indulgence and a loss of clarity. And for this reason, I think the general rule of thumb that says no intoxicating substances is pretty good if we're talking about rules only as rules go. But anyone who is more interested in following rules to the letter than they are in truly understanding how their mind works and how it actually relates to experience is not going to get very far in Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice is not about rules. When we don't fully experience life as it is, manifesting itself at this moment, we can easily become possessed by a craving, a craving of any sort. In that state of craving, we may want to take something or bring something to us to loosen us up or tighten us up or pep us up or calm us down or sharpen our mind and body or to dull our mind and body or to give us pleasure or take away pain. You know, anything that you actively even turn away from or ignore tends to have an an influence over you. Like if you consistently think about the thing you're not going to do, that's the thing that's controlling you. And the more energetic you're ignoring it, the more power you give to what is ignored. The thing does not actually have the power in itself. Its power depends on your refusal to pay attention to it. And sometimes that means just looking at it and letting it be for a while. And then you're able to see what arises in you and then see it pass and understand what brings it into arising in you and how it passes so that you're not fighting with it, but you're releasing it. You know, in the book Shift into Freedom, Locke Kelly writes, quote, according to Buddhism, suffering is created by ignorance, craving, and aversion. There are two common ways to alleviate suffering. The first approach focuses on reducing craving and aversion, and the second aims to clear up ignorance. But each begins with a different starting point, unquote. You know, from my perspective, clearing up ignorance is the only true way to alleviate suffering. Looking at the precepts as rules of ethics takes the form of a permission, you know, a permission of what we can do and what we can't do. And that word permission or that sense of permission assumes there is someone or something else in authority, either society or perhaps God, who will reward or punish us for breaking the rules. When we work with precepts, we do so with the understanding, and this is from my view from a Mahayana standing, Mahayana perspective. So that understanding is that self and other are delusions. This concept of ethics is not one based on a transactional experience 
of granting me anything for doing the right thing. It's firmly anchored in the non-dual perspective central to Buddhist philosophy. You know, there is nothing external to us acting as an authority. We are our own authorities based on clearing up illusion and gaining wisdom. But this requires working with ourselves on a very deep and intimate level, honestly evaluating our own motivations and thinking deeply about how our actions will affect others. And by doing this, we ourselves will then open ourselves to true wisdom and true compassion and to an enlightened vision and enlightened activities. So that's it for today's episode on the five precepts. I can hear it now. I didn't give any answers, did I? Nope. There's no authority. I certainly am not one. And I don't think most of the teachers are one. They give, they, they guide you. So think of them as guideposts or loving, kind guides, but not as rules. So thanks for joining me on this episode. Again, thanks to everyone who's donated or commented on my podcast for the over the past weeks. Like I said, I always try to reach out with a private email of thanks, but be patient because, as I said, I'm quite behind. But each week, I'm thrilled to say that more and more of you have commented, asked questions, and suggested podcast subjects. And I hear you. And it's all it's going to take me a little while, but I promise to look at these things and uh, incorporate them in a podcast episode whenever possible. And as always, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting my work through a recurring or one-time donation on my website donation tab at everyday-buddhism.com. So until next time, keep making your everydays better. <laughs>